earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Are you driving? At home? Elsewhere on your mobile device? Catching the podcast? Friends, today is part two in our new series, Faith's Fundamentals, Building a Solid Belief System. Part one was the God who reveals himself. Today, part two is the God who reveals himself as one, yet three. And we'll pick up where we left off last time and briefly review the follow-up to our closing question. Why does it matter that we understand the nature of God and therefore hold the belief in the doctrine of the Trinity? We even asked, what difference does it make? Or what's the big deal anyway? My thought-provoking conclusion last time started with, first, in our day, the desire to snuff out the doctrine of the nature of God is intense. There's a raging battle, friends, but it's subtle. Because Judeo-Christian beliefs are unique and distinct from the other world religions and the aberrant Christian sects, let's be motivated to gain at least a basic working knowledge of this fundamental doctrine. Second, the Trinity is actually a Jewish revelation, even if the Hebrew authors didn't fully grasp what the Holy Spirit was revealing to them. Third, to the discerning eye and observant reader of Scripture, the Trinity can be uncovered in the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. Fourth, the Trinity is implicit in the Old Testament and explicit in the New. Fifth, our present understanding is not contrived or forced upon the biblical texts. If you missed part one, just go to faithtalk1360.com and search for local program podcasts. Well, let's continue with these additional facts. Sixth, the Trinity was not a mystery to the New Testament authors. They certainly connected the dots regarding Jesus' identity, the nature of God, and the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Their statements in the New Testament make this clear. Seventh, if the New Testament authors connected the dots, then we should be able to as well. It's time we stop resigning ourselves to it's a mystery and take the time to learn this teaching more fully. The significance here, friends, is that these seven truths I shared challenge the false notion that the Trinity was a third or fourth century invention borrowed or co-opted from pagan concepts and later imported into the church's teachings. So it's my hope that we'll deepen our knowledge and understanding of the historic Judeo-Christian beliefs that are being eroded both in the religious marketplace and sadly even within evangelical church circles. 
friends, if there's one thing we can say about the enemy of our souls, he's crafty. In Genesis 3, 1, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice, the serpent immediately calls into question God's word. He instills doubt in God's word and character, and thus intends to arouse suspicion of God himself. The word crafty here is interesting in the Hebrew. It carries the meanings of shrewd, cunning, and subtle. There's some other things we should watch out for regarding our enemy's shrewdness, cunning, and subtlety. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul instructs us to be careful that Satan doesn't outwit us or outsmart us, even exploit us, for we are not unaware or ignorant of his schemes. And schemes here in the Greek includes the purpose of the mind, or devices or designs of the mind. A modern-day equivalent might be mind games. In a sense, we could say that we should not be ignorant of Satan's mind games. Remember, friends, false apostles and false teachers are called out as masquerading as apostles of Christ, false and deceitful workers. Paul continues, No wonder Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then that his servants do the same. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15 Jesus knew this full well. In the temptation account in Matthew 4, we not only have the three temptations, but we watch Satan intentionally misquoting scripture. He leaves out a phrase in Psalm 91 so he could advance his own agenda. Well, friends, since I put out the teaser that the Old Testament bears witness to the doctrine of the Trinity and its origin may be traced there, I guess I better get going on sharing these truths. But first, I'd like to ask a question. If Romans 1, 19 and 20 are true, that what may be known about God is plain to humans because God has made it plain, and since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood by what has been made, it would seem to me, shouldn't there be some kind of witness in nature and the created world to God's triune nature? Well, friends, I'm going to offer some parallels in nature and creation to help us recognize that the Trinity in the created order is not so far-fetched or even mysterious. First, there's water. Now, I need to be careful here because the opposition uses water for their defense. But let me elaborate on this to clarify the key point, which sometimes gets muddied, no pun intended. Let me propose an experiment. Get a small glass glass and put several ice cubes in it. Wait for the ice to begin melting. Watch for the vapor that collects on the inside of the glass. As the ice melts, there will be water at the bottom, vapor on the sides, and the frozen ice still left. So now we have a solid, the cubes, a liquid, the melted ice, and a vapor that's formed. All these are H2O, essentially water, but now existing in three different states as solid, liquid, and gas, or vapor. 
Now, what's key here, friends, and what distinguishes this experiment from the Christian modalists is that while the modalists boast that this example just proves that H2O manifests itself in three modes of operation, they hesitate to admit that this H2O as three different forms exists simultaneously. You see, friends, the modalists teach that God does not exist in three persons simultaneously, but rather exists in history first as God the Father, then God the Son, and now God the Holy Spirit. I'll elaborate on this shortly. Back to the parallels of trinities in nature and creation. Second, time. Time is represented as past, present, and future. Third, the sun. The sun's properties are threefold, giving off light, heat, and fire. Fourth, electricity, which consists of motion, heat, and light. Fifth, a beam of light, which has three rays, the invisible, the visible, and the heat-producing ray. And for you techies, the actinic, luminiferous, and the calorific. Sixth, the universe with its three basic elements, space, matter, and time. And each one of these is triune. Space is length, width, and height. Matter, energy, motion, and phenomenon. And time, past, present, and future, as we mentioned. Consider also the parallels to our humanness. Human personality is generally understood as the threefold use of affections, intellect, and will. The human body is generally understood to contain three distinct systems, the nervous system, the circulatory system, and the digestive system. In addition, the Trinitarian witness that is evident in the Old Testament is evident in the New. We are actually forced to conclude that the Trinity doctrine did not originate with the New Testament, but rather the New Testament writers brought to light more direct statements and stronger hints of the Trinity. Just organizationally speaking, we benefit from re-examining the Old Testament structure and system, which enlightens us to Trinitarian patterns. For example, the Old Testament teachings, law, prophets, and writings, Israel's mediators, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Hebrew prayer schedule, morning, afternoon, evening, Israel's national makeup, priests, Levites, Israelites, and Israel's primary patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some Trinitarian patterns in the New Testament are the baptismal formula in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus' baptism, Matthew three thirteen through 17s witness of all three members of the triune Godhead present simultaneously. The triune benediction in 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen. Paul's Trinitarian greetings in Colossians 1, 6 through 8. Paul's threefold declaration of unity in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Paul's threefold declaration of the working of the triune Godhead in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. Other hints of the triune Godhead in their simultaneous existence in Ephesians 2, 13 through 18. Now, friends, in Hebrew worship and in synagogue services, there's the Shema, the first word in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is known as the central declaration of the Jewish faith. It's sung regularly in the synagogue. Shema Yisrael. 
Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And one chapter before that, in Deuteronomy 5, 6, the rereading of the Ten Commandments, Moses begins by reciting the Lord's words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The word before also means besides. So the Israelites understood this to mean they shall have no other gods before or besides the Lord. And in the chapter before that, in Deuteronomy 4, 32-35, Moses tells the Israelites, Has anything so great ever happened? Or has anything like this ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him there is no other." So, friends, it's no coincidence that the first commandment in Deuteronomy 5-7 grows out of this language. And please keep in mind that this is not an acknowledgement that other gods actually exist, but that they shall not make for themselves other gods, per verse 8. Well, sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, the notion that there's no other god is reiterated over and over I've found that the greatest concentration of Old Testament verses are in Isaiah between chapters 42 and 46, some 17 verses. Here's a few. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me. And understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Isaiah 44, 6 and 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God beside me. Isaiah 45, 21 through 23. Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The work has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee shall bow, and every tongue will swear allegiance. Hmm, <laughs> any of those statements sound familiar? Like you've heard them before? Referring to Jesus? You see, friends, the foundation for the triunity of God, or the Trinity, is laid in the Old Testament. It doesn't all of a sudden appear in the 4th century with the early church fathers, as is claimed by Christianity's critics and the cults. Except for maybe Luke, all the New Testament authors were Jewish, staunch monotheists who believed there was only one God. 
And remember, friends, God's initial revelation of himself to humankind, while not explicitly declaring his triune nature, lays a scriptural foundation for the later and fuller revelation in the New Testament, that God is, in fact, a triune being, a triunity, if you will, shortened to trinity. And how does the Old Testament do this? By revealing to us the Hebrew understanding of oneness. Friends, our English Bibles simply don't reflect the meanings behind the original word choices made by the Old Testament authors. Understanding biblical oneness is extremely important in order to grasp what the Bible says about God and how the Trinity ties in. It's particularly important when turning to the New Testament and noticing just how the disciples and New Testament writers grasped the concept. The Hebrew concept of oneness is twofold. First, there's oneness understood as a compound or multiple oneness. And second, there's oneness understood as an indivisible or mathematical oneness. Let's look at a few examples to see the distinctions, and these word choices are consistent in their usage. Genesis 1.5, and there was evening and there was morning, one day. Notice the two parts of the day signifying one day. And this is the compound unity word one. All the days of Genesis use this word. Genesis 2.24, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice, husband and wife, two people, becoming one flesh. Here again, the compound unity word one is used. Numbers 13.23, A single cluster of grapes. The word single here is the Hebrew word for one, the compound unity word. Judges 20, 1, 8, and 11. Israel assembled as one man. Notice the entire Israelite congregation assembled as one. Here again, the Hebrew compound unity word for one is used. Now, friends, let's switch to the indivisible mathematical oneness word to see the distinctions between these two. Genesis 22, 2, 12, and 16, spoken to Abraham, take your only one son. Judges eleven thirty four, a reference to Jephthah's daughter. She was his one and only child. Psalm 68, 6, God sets the lonely or solitary in families. In all three cases, the Hebrew word one is the indivisible mathematical oneness word. Now, with this basic understanding of two Hebrew words for oneness and the distinctions made in the Hebrew scriptures between compound oneness and mathematical oneness, let's return to Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Friends, which word for one do you think is used here in Deuteronomy 6.4? Bingo! The word for compound or multiple oneness. In other words, compound unity. You see, friends, the Old Testament authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, revealed God to us using their language and words. We must take this into consideration when interpreting Scripture. God is one. The Scriptures declare this. 
But God is not a mathematical, indivisible one. He's a compound or multiple one. And friends, this compound or multiple oneness is more fully revealed to us in the New Testament as a triunity or a trinity. God is one in essence or nature, yet he is revealed in three distinct personalities or egos, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When I was preparing for ordination in the second denomination I became affiliated with, one case study in my comprehensive exam was this. A person comes to you with his face beaming and says, I finally figured out how the Trinity works. There's one God, right? So in the Old Testament times, people knew him as the Father. Then he came to earth as Jesus and was the Son. And now in our time, we know him as the Holy Spirit. So, how might you answer that person? Would you say, you got it, that's correct? Or would you say, well, let's go back to the drawing board? You see, friends, this case study is intentionally designed to depict classic modalism. You're probably thinking, what is classic modalism? I'm glad you asked. Modalism is an umbrella term that goes back by other names, depending on the focus. It was first introduced in the 3rd century by the Latin priest and theologian Sibelius, so it's sometimes called Sibelianism. But modalism is a good general term because the premise is God is one solitary being, in other words, a mathematical one. He therefore manifests himself in three modes, the mode of the Father, the mode of the Son, and the mode of the Holy Spirit. But he's not simultaneously all three. Generally, many modalists believe that the one solitary being is God the Father. But there is a group that holds that Jesus is the solitary being. Either way, this one being periodically or at different times in history takes on the modes we mentioned. One common way to describe God's work in the world from a modalist point of view is this. There is one God who manifests himself as Father in creation, Son in redemption, and Holy Spirit in regeneration. In the late 1800s to mid-1900s, theologian A.W. Tozer commented on this. A popular belief among Christians divides the work of God between the three persons, giving a specific part to each, creation to the Father, redemption to the Son, and regeneration to the Holy Spirit. This is partly true, but not wholly so, for God cannot so divide himself that one person works while another is inactive. In the scriptures, the three persons are shown to act in harmonious unity in all the mighty works that are wrought throughout the universe. Well, let's field test this statement and see if the scriptures portray a modalist view of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or if they portray Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing simultaneously and who are indistinct and interact relationally in a subject-object relationship. In John 5.17, Jesus makes a curious statement that seems impossible if modalism's view is true. My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. In Matthew 3, 13-17, the baptism of Jesus, we read, As soon as Jesus was baptized, 
Heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And thirdly, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So, modalism is not a biblical way of understanding the nature of God. Friends, the God of modalism is not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture discloses himself initially in the Old Testament as a compound oneness that's expanded in the New. There's a plurality in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing simultaneously, each possessing their own distinct personality and will. So, Trinitarianism affirms that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Yet not three gods, but one. No one in this Trinity is before or after. No one greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program. I hope this study is helping us to better understand some fundamental doctrines we cherish. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. Please also consider joining a word from the word support team. Ask for the details. Thanks to you who help keep this program on the air. Thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.